Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. We're back with the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in to today's episode. This is episode 206. 206. Uh, I'm your host, Josh, with my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, we got another five-star review just came yes, in, sir. man. Yes, sir. You yes, see sir. that? I, I did. I'm trying to get my... Um, there it is. Okay. Um, iTunes phone stuff's not working. There it is. Okay. From WTX H2O. Uh, WTH, WTX H2O. I enjoy listening while on my way to the field. Great update. Thank you very much for the five-star, which puts us at 313. So we're on our way to 400. Let's go ahead and get that Get that knocked out. It'd be good for us. We'd appreciate it. Um, but thank you for the five-star review. We have another guest coming on today. A lot of guests, Josh. It's just bringing the guest week after week, bringing the information. So if you appreciate that uh, five-star review, if you don't five-star review, we don't actually accept one-star reviews. So Five-star, five-star only. And, That's, right. Uh, That's right. We also accept small and large donations in all sizes. Uh, any parties, uh, listen, they get strategy sessions. Uh, <laughs> listen, <laughs> listen, Josh, Josh will take a little bit more dirty money than I will. I'll take dirty money, but his, he'll take his money a little bit more dirty. Sequential hundred dollar bills. He's going to take, you know, there's, there's a line in the sand for me. So, <laughs> well, Ryan, uh, yeah, five mil, uh, something along those lines. We, we can make it happen. Uh, so oilprice.com, Ryan, looking at that, oil this morning's around 65. Um, I think it, it uh, I had an article that I found that uh, talked about the Iranian deal that, you know, the nuclear deal that they're talking in talks with UN and people monitoring them. Apparently, uh, the oil price dropped a little bit last week based on that, some of those discussions, but now it's rebounding today. Uh, I say today over the weekend and today. Um, I mean, what are we thinking? How, how do you, how do you see in that affect oil prices in the next couple of months? You think Iran is going to be a big player here or do you think this is all just uh, news stuff? Yeah. Well, if you're, if you remember going back to, to last year, um, you know, the fact that there's more Iranian oil in the market than has been reported is not news except for the way that the news is covered. And that sounds weird. It's, it's not really news to those who, kind of follow what's going on with Iran. Um, but now it's starting to get more coverage. And so you've had to wonder how much of that was playing with the pricing is that there was more Iranian oil out there than was being reported on. And so as we move forward, if the sanctions were lifted on Iran, you would see a closer number to what is act what they're actually producing, you know, almost instantaneously. And so that might drive the price down some if it's, I don't know what, what they're reporting right now, but if it was double what they're reporting or a time and a half more than what they're reporting, you know, it'd probably drive the price down some. So you have that. They might also increase production as well. They've lost a lot of money on this deal. Um, so I, I think that's kind of where the Iranian stuff sits for now. The price though has been strong for a long period of time. And so, you know, I mean, we're what, six months into the year almost, and it's still $65. And so if you go back and look, um, I don't know if I can get this chart to work real quick. Let's see if I can. Uh, you know, for the last three months, it's been over 55. And if you go back to, if I get this chart to work, 
since January, I don't think it's dipped below 50, right? Maybe one. Oh. Yeah, dipped below 49 40, uh, on January 5th, but pretty much over 50 since January. And so, um, and so, you know, that's, that's, listen, that's what the industry needs. It won't. It's been above 55 since almost back to February. Uh, you know, there's a few dips in there. But anyways, so the price is good. The price is strong. Now, I have Mark Rosano coming on inside the war room tomorrow. I'll be curious to see his takes because, um, you know, he's a little concerned about inflation or, or has been. So I'm curious to see how he uh, reads some of this uh, tomorrow. Yeah, that's, uh, that's been something that, and it's been interesting to watch. It's kind of how how these players in the Middle East and how the oil price has been holding strong even amidst some uncertainty there. Uh, I know OPEC is one you know big thing that that we have our eye on as far as uh, how that's going to impact oil prices. But even you know, Zero Heads that reported this article, they're still seeing uh, Brent being up you know at 80, uh, 80 a barrel by the fourth quarter of this year. Um, Jay Young obviously he was you know very bullish uh, on oil price this 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 year and uh but it's been holding strong um it's good to see hopefully uh companies are taking advantage of the opportunity for sure so um, if, you're, if, if you're opec don't you do everything in your power to prevent the price from getting to 80 like don't you they meet monthly now so don't you do everything because if it gets to 80 you have to uh, be concerned that the narrative in the u.s about the dollar is willing to invest in the market um, that this starts to change because 80 the profitability gets pretty good so you know maybe those these financial groups start putting money back into the u.s uh, uh, uh frackers um emps and so if that happens then you know obviously the price could be could, could drilled down right too far so mm -hmm. i wonder if opec is going to i say i don't know if i can control it that much but if they're going to do everything in their power to prevent it to get to 80 because uh, i'd be concerned you know drill baby drill might be the next motto if we see 80 dollar prices which could it, back to forty thirty dollar prices, right? Because everybody rushes out there to drill and then they drill back down. So, but if OPEC does it, I mean, what what would it drop to then? You think you think they could? No, I think monitor they would, it down to sixty five. I think yeah, I think they like it right here. I don't think they're I think they're content. So that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't think they want to. I think right now, if you look at it, the U.S. the, the concern was OPEC might ramp up production to keep the prices soft. That hasn't happened. That the U.S. producers might run out there to, and, and put the prices down. That hasn't happened. The prices are good. Everyone can make money. Uh, theoretically, not everyone, but you know, the, the players can make money right now. And so, if you're OPEC and the price continues to climb, you're incentivized more players to come to the market. And so, when more players come to the market, the risk is then that you eventually go over that curve and too many players come in, or, or too many rigs at least come online, and all of a sudden you just push the price back down and it, you can't stop it. Uh, so U.S. producers can't obviously afford that, but they can't obviously they also can't stop it from happening the same way that OPEC can. OPEC can. So yeah. I something like, will they try to do their best to prevent it from crossing above 70 uh, and try to keep it in the 60 range? I'm not saying that they have the power. They can put that much on, on the market. But if I were them, that would be my focus. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if that would be the mentality with the, the way the the market is, is kind of sitting right now with the hesitancy to invest large amounts of money um i mean 80 dollars a barrel you know that the opportunities for for making some you know nice profits are there so you would think you know e even with all the uncertainty you'll see some people you'll see a lot more people starting to um run the risk 
But at the same time, I, I don't think we're going to see it anyway, anything like we saw like 2017 because people have been burned and there's a lot of hesitation because, you know, Keystone Pipeline can get shut down. Right. Um, these banning on federal lands can happen with, you know, just one administration change. So there's just these uncertainties that are there that I think before you go and invest that kind of money, you really want to do your homework and make sure you have a good investment on your hands. It's, it's definitely different, right? It's definitely different. Mm -hmm. That's why I think the money's slower to come back. But at some point, the money will will come back. Now, is that 80? Is it get, gotta get to 90? Is it get to 100? I don't know. But at some point, the money will say, you know what? We're going to take the risk here. Um, and, and, and so we'll see. I just, I think again, OPEC will, will do its best to, um, try to keep the prices sub 70 because they can make money there. The U S companies can make money there. The ones that are in it at least. And, um, you know, it's good for the industry. Let's be honest. It's good for the industry to have long-term steady prices. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to see it right now. All right, so we've been following uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, just what's going on there. So uh, just kind of catch everybody up, Ryan. I, I believe what happened is one of the uh, the governor, I think it was Whitmer, made a comment that there was a small uh, place where this pipeline was passing over, and she was wanting to shut the whole pipeline down, pipeline that ran from Canada to the U.S. And uh, so David Blackman, our good friend, uh, wrote uh, at the Forbes, a key ruling on Friday for Bach and Shell Focus Oil and Gas Industry, federal judge James Burr begrudgingly allowed the Dakota Access Pipeline to continue transporting oil um, while they're going through these environmental reviews. So the pipeline will stay active, but uh, they are not out of the woods yet. And so they are doing the environmental review. Um, I mean, Ryan, do you think this is good news or bad? I mean, at some level, it's definitely good news that it's staying open, but um, this it, just the fact that they that they're actually doing the review and going through this whole process, man, it would make me nervous. Uh, <laughs> to be honest with you, it gets exhausting, right? I mean, it's just like, man, you know, what do you got to do? What do you have to do to, to work in this country these days? And uh, I think the, the Whitmer deal is line five, isn't it? She's not tied up with Dapple, I don't think, but I could be wrong about that. She's tied up with that uh that line five under the river or whatever it is in michigan but am i, am I crazy on that or am i crazy? No, you're right yeah you're right i just i saw it and uh that that was kind of fresh on my mind yeah, so yeah. this this is a yeah. this one's an environmental review though so it's yeah, oh, similar yeah. yeah but it's not it's not a, it's not a, a um at least you have it's not the executive branch kind of laying the laying the law down here um you have the judicial branch who's involved as well ah you know this is it's concerning because you know here we are and what it, what does the future of large pipeline projects in our country look like? And you know, I, I think I think on the show we talked about it, but you know, if we if we can't build these large infrastructure projects from Canada down to the to the Gulf Coast, Canada will will has to do something with its oil, right? And they'll eventually sell it to China or ship it somewhere else or ship it to the U.S. And, and what will happen is is the U.S. policymakers will get mad at Canada for doing something other than piping it through our country and then we'll start blaming Canada for making a different decision. And it's like, well, guys, we're not being reliable here. We need to be reliable trade partners and you have to have reliable policy. That's a reliable trade partner. And right now we just do not have reliable policy. And it's so frustrating. It's I'm not, I'm not, I'm not for over-regulation, but at least in an over-regulatory environment, you at least know what the rules are right now. We don't know what the rules are. And that's the worst type of environment because it's, it changes. You have the bad administration, you have the Obama administration, 
then you have the Trump administration, and you have the Biden administration. And, you know, he's obviously not going to run again. So you'll have either maybe the Harris administration or the Republican administration again, or, or you know, if I run in 2024 and, you know, Donald mm. the Ray administration, whatever it might be. But we don't have the, the, the parties are so opposite on stuff like this that it creates these big, huge pendulum swings. And, and that's just not good for long-term diplomacy, long-term international business, and long-term investment in the country. And so it's just so frustrating. And it's frustrating, too, that politics plays such a big role in how these things are put forward, uh, because uh, as, as Blackman notes here at the end of his article, uh, Biden's own energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, said a couple of weeks ago, pipe is the way to go. Um, so why wouldn't people say that during the Keystone Pipeline? Like, what What's the... Uh, when they're trying to shut down, you know, line five, what, how come the posture of the, uh, the administration isn't, well, the pipe is the best way to do this. So until we no longer need oil or find something to replace that energy, we're going to have to have these pipelines in place. So that's not how they speak or talk about it when it's uh, not politically convenient. But um, when it is, you know, they're, they're fine with saying that. And it's frustrating because, um, it seems uh, it seems there has to be some ulterior motives for them to actually come out and admit and acknowledge that pipe is the best way to transport the, these fossil fuels. Uh, agreed, agreed. It's 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 infuriating and it's it's just <laughs> you know, what what are we doing here? Uh, we're, we're playing um, playing games. It feels like. So, Ryan, I, uh, I saw a story reminding me of our long lost friend that hasn't come on the show, what, in like a year. Uh, did you see the, the, uh, the news story? Uh, there's this company, uh, Cimerex, joined with a company we've kind of been kind of talking about, kind of not talking about for like four years now Capital and Gas. Did you see where they merged to create a $17 billion producer? If only we had a reporter who covered such a topic. Maybe. Right. Yes. Yeah. He's right. he's went on out of the out of out of the you know the the key part of the industry, which obviously is this podcast, and uh, he is. Where did he, he went to? Some small small group. Where did he go to? Yeah. Yeah. Somebody. Yeah. Was it Bloomingdale's? Like a clothing Blo- or something? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Blue blue bonnet. Blue Bale ice cream. I can't remember. He went to some small outfit. He can't even can't remember where he went. But if if only the surge, uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Sergio Chapa himself would would cover it, Cabot. We would not have to break this news for him. But anyways, what's the story, Josh? Seventeen billion dollars. Cimarex, Cabot, Oil and Gas. They're merging to create a seventeen billion dollar producer. Uh, this was this was the big deal in the news today when I was uh, d- doing some research. I mean, this was everywhere. Uh, they're expecting to save $100 million in annual general and administrative costs by the merger. Um, one of the things you're going to see, what this is, I hadn't even checked this, Ryan, I'm just guessing. They're going to get torched on uh, their stock prices because of this merger, even though it makes a lot of sense for them. Um, this is what we're seeing. But anyway, the, the deal is going to combine Cabot's 170,000 net acres um, in Marcellus and Cimarex is 560,000 net acres in Texas, uh, Permian, and also Oklahoma's and a well, you base. Your normal five million dollar fee to advise on this deal too, Josh, or not? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you, you can put me on retainer, and we can just we can spread those payments out over a couple of years. Um, 
you know, I'm, I'll work with you. Uh, I need cash in advance. I'm not too sure <laughs> if prices get back down, there might not be payments a couple of years from now. So I need cash on hand, cash on hand. Okay. I think our guests are here. Let's see if we can bring them on. Let's get you guys unmuted. You got to unmute yourself. You are muted. So Simon and Omar, if you could unmute yourself. There we go. All right. Put you fellows on the big screen here. Uh, there we go. Hey, okay. Can you hear us? We can hear you guys. Can you hear us? Yeah. Yes, okay. sir. Yeah. Go ahead and introduce yourself, please. Uh, I'm Simon Palacio here. I'm a senior electrical engineer with uh, Burns and McDonald Engineering and uh, Omar Akita is a uh, farm manager in our uh, utility consultant division. Okay. Good awesome. deal, guys. Good deal. So how are, th- how is it going on your neck of the woods? Here in Houston? Yeah, he, we're up here in you know North Texas. So is it hot and humid down there yet? It's rainy. We're getting a lot of rain. We're getting turn up the volume here. Yeah, yeah, we're getting a lot of rain up here too. Getting a lot of rain up here too. So um, for those not familiar, maybe do a quick introduction on what who Burns McDonald, who is Burns and McDonald. What do you guys do? You are muted. You are muted. You muted. Is that better? There you go. Yeah. Uh, so Burns and McDonald is a mid-sized uh, EPC, about 7,000 people all across the U.S., some assets in uh, Canada and uh, the U.K. One of our biggest markets is uh, transmi- transmission and distribution. Uh, we're an employee-owned company that uh, does a lot of work on uh, electric grids all across the U.S. for different you know, utilities, uh, heavy industrial interconnects. And that's what kind of got us into this uh, Texas oil and gas market. Mm. Okay, so I know you guys want to talk about electric, uh, oil field electrification. Um, obviously, that's a term that we've talked about historically, but what's kind of your angle on it and why is that an important thing for folks in the oil and gas industry to be thinking about? Yeah, so uh, thanks for asking the question. Um, what we're seeing, you know, trends both, uh, you know, changes in administration, but also long before that, um, especially driven by investors, uh, folks are looking for a portfolio that includes investment into how are you going to, um, you know, reduce your emissions throughout your process, right? And so we've seen that in drivers in investment and, you know, activist investment, things like that. And a lot of folks are looking for that plan. You know, um, electrification is one of those options. And we've been helping a lot of folks uh, kind of ferret out the different options, right? So all the way from uh, put a solar panel on every rig out there, which is not not the way to go per se, uh, but also you know more importantly like uh, looking into uh, electrifying kind of grid scenario to reduce uh, scope one scope two type emissions and you know we've really been driven by uh, so our clients come in to to look for solutions right um, so folks have to put it you know in front of their boards um, their and the approximate costs and approaches that may be successful in uh, in a kind of ESG type. Uh, scenarios so one of the things with the um like flare mitigation and using it for electricity that I've, I've, I've heard people talk about and we've kind of wondered is it is it something that's like significantly more profitable or is it just more of an investor relations how should producers um think about this is it something that's going to actually uh, increase your bottom line or is it something that you, you know guys it's not actually gonna make you a lot of money but you'll be able to get investors or is it both I'm a, I put it in the both category, not to just uh, straddle the fence, but I think it's going to depend on what your assets look like, right? Um, what we found is that it is a lot more profitable in areas where you have a large need for power density, 
right? So when you have shell plays, you have a lot of things going on, you need a lot of power in one particular area, um, you start to have an ability to utilize, um, you know, higher utilization of electrical infrastructure, right? So all of a sudden that CapEx spend uh, to reduce, uh, you know, the cost of energy, which is a long-term op OPEX scenario, uh, really starts to look profitable, right? But in other places, I mean, you know, if you're, uh, if you're looking from like a global mindset, do you take into account the cost of your capital, your ability to get it from the market or other places? Um, and that, that's really where you start to see in this tipping point. Um, if nothing else, you know, folks want to see in your quarterly reports and your annual reports describing what are you doing and what are you looking into? And if nothing else, doing that feasibility assessment up front um, in the right way really helps you in that scenario. And are, are you guys, do um, you normally see, let's say like a, a, a Permian well. So a typical Permian well, are they just using this to self-power the equipment out there or can they put a bunch of it back on the grid? Uh, because obviously if you can you know, use the power for yourself, you can reduce the cost. But is there enough to put back on the grid? Um, maybe unpack, is it case by case? How does that work? Absolutely case by case, right? So at the end of the day, you know, whether it be your well or your processing facilities or getting into the pipeline, you know, you have compression scenarios, you have a lot of use for energy, you have getting out of out of the hole. Um, in those, you know, there's a lot of different options, right? So maybe you can utilize some of that, uh, some of that excess gas to produce your own, uh, uh, your own electricity there, uh, there on the pad or at certain certain locations in, in a gathering sense. Um, other places is really just becoming a large consumer on the grid. You know, especially in places like Permian and, and others, you're already in a scenario where the uh, electric market is giving you a lot of cheap wholesale power. Right. So if you know anything about the, the electrical grid, a lot of your renewables, solar, wind, all those type of things on a on a, a per energy basis in the um, in the in the near term. Right. At the spot market are really low. At certain points, you actually get negative pricing. Right. Would you want to be a consumer when you're when you have negative pricing on the wholesale? Yeah, absolutely. Sign me up. So it really depends on kind of all the different factors and someone who understands, hey, how does this power when I need to power? Right. Horsepower, electric power, either way, something needs to spin. Right. Something needs to, to get compressed. Um, and then what is the cost to do that? Both CapEx and OpEx scenario. And that OpEx can be hugely different, right? You can be in portions of the deregulated market within ERC, within ERCOT or other places, right? You know, we also have seen a lot of folks look at this in New Mexico and Oklahoma and other places. It's not just in Texas. Um, or you could be in, you know, kind of more regulated scenario and uh, uh, you know, the old kind of vertically integrated pocket. And there's a lot of options there too. Uh, at the end of the day, it's really trying to look into what's best for your asset and for your portfolio, especially a uh, power purchase and, uh, and gaining capital from the market. So if a company is looking at trying to increase uh, the electrification, um, what's, what sort of U-Haul uh, do they have to do of their current assets? I mean, to, to make that transition, it has to be a pretty significant investment, I'm guessing, from what they're currently using. So uh, we saw people that were switching from, um, diesel to natural gas powered or these dual um so well i guess what my question is if these companies wanted to look into doing this are there phases where they could do this or is it going to have to be a complete uh rehaul of, of their current assets it, it certainly helps to look at it from a big picture approach because you can't just you know scab together you know we'll, we'll build one electric circuit here for this place build another electric circuit there for that place and next thing you know then you've got voltage you know quality issues going up and down because you didn't look at the system as a whole as you're going to build out um, everything. 
Um, and, and, and we've seen some of that with some of the early adoption uh, folks, some of the large EMPs that uh, were early adopters of this and didn't really come with a, with a big you know, front end plan. You get start running issues, running into issues where, you know, there's blackouts and blackouts aren't, aren't, uh, aren't tracked. Why, why did you have a blackout? How long? Where? Um, how to fix these things along the way? Um, where's, where's overloaded? Where's not overloaded and why? Uh, none of these things were really tracked with properly asset management. And, uh, you know, some of the other folks who went in a little wiser and created a, a big plan ahead of time and, and phased execution are doing a lot better. Um, so it, it's interesting. We get to see it from from different folks that have, that have taken different approaches um, from both the, the, you know, the, the EMP side, but also the utility side. Yeah. And so to your point about what, what I would consider like brownfield applications, right? So you already got something spinning something out there, right? You got an energy source. You got something going on. Um, you know, there, there's, a, there's still opportunity there. There's a, obviously a higher cost, um, but in a greenfield application, if you got to get the compression out there, you got to get the motor, it's just buying one versus another, right? And so there's, there may be a much better opportunity there, but don't get me wrong, great opportunity in the brownfield space as well. But we always look at it from, you know, util, uh, helping our clients is what does your portfolio look like, right? If you're all brownfield, you know, uh, is there still opportunity? There might be. Um, or do you have a mix of brownfield, greenfield, right? And, you know, kind of a cap, CapEx spend plan for the next five, 10 years. Where do you really want to focus that? At the end of the day, it's looking at derivative metrics of, you know, uh, car, you know uh, carbon reduction versus MBA or versus dollar OPEX or things like that. Those derivative metrics will point you in that, that space because a lot of times folks say, hey, I have X, you know, million dollars to spend on this type of, of initiative. Where do I spend it? And, you know, if you look at those derivative metrics in, 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 uh, as in any kind of economic assessment, uh, they're going to tell you where the right, right way to go is. You know, the, the data is going to tell you what, what, what to do. You know, up until this point, you know, it's only been a few years where, you know, some of the equipment that you can buy, whether it be submersible pumps or track rates have just have been offered in fully electric uh, models. It's only a few years old. So I mean, there's a lot of folks out there that, uh, you know, are, are really set up entirely with, without a clean cut way to electrify without going through some you know major spend on some electrification by buying all new equipment or converting old equipment compressors from you know combustion driven to electric drive ones that's not a that's not a cheap that's not a cheap um, project to take on is this something that you know we have producers that are kind of big and small all listening is this something that they can come together and say you know what um i'm gonna make up names here but like an eog can partner with you know ryan's independent, small, unnamed producer you've never heard of? Or is it something that they have to tackle on their own? Because I could see a situation where a small producer might go, yeah, listen, I would like to do this, but I don't really have enough. Is it something that they could, they could partner with a a, neighbor, a nearby drilling partner or do they have to kind of, you know, no, it's, you're on your own in this uh, operation. Oh, we're glad you asked that question. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Um, I think once folks start putting assets out in the field, um, you start seeing wires going up. The question is, is that, you know, a utility full open access wire or is that somebody's private network, right? Um, you know, I, I think there's more to, to talk about in that space, but it's going to need, you know, kind of changes in, in the approach. The utility market, especially in the wire scenario, is a, a dedicated regulated market. And the reason being is because you don't want to have rate payers all across, you know, uh, me and my house, you at your studio, uh, paying for infrastructure that may or may not be utilized by by a private entity, right? And so that kind of legacy setup, which 
you know, in a lot, all opinion, I think it makes the most sense for, for wires, um, makes sense for, you know, wastewater coming to your house, a lot of things like that, right? Um, you know, that has set up a scenario where there are certificated areas where if you're going to be part of a conglomerate, right, to, to, to uh, get electricity, that's called the utility, right? So you do have, um, you know, opportunities to connect with uh, local utilities and they do it all the time. I mean, electrification is not new, right? Folks have been electrifying assets for a while. What I think is new is trying to package it in a scenario that helps you corporately, right? At a large sense. Um, you know, the, the small players and big players have the opportunity to get a meter right at their fence for every one of their facilities. Um, where you start to see advantages is when you can pool those resources, those, those electric resources, and get it at a particular interconnect. That gives you opportunity in tariff structure, it gives you opportunity in uh, power purchase agreements and a lot of the things and playing in the market that can get you the portfolio that you're looking for, right? How risky do you want for your you know, underlying uh, wholesale assets? Uh, how, uh, how firm do you want it, right? You know, uh, those that were more risky, uh, paid a little uh, extra penny in winter storm Uri, right? Those that are, you know, paid a little bit more for that premium and fixed price uh, did, did fairly well, right? So that gives you that opportunity if you're able to pool your resources. But just like, uh, you know, just like, uh, uh, you know, us at, at our, our um, houses, we're in a different tariff structure, right? We're, we're paying a significantly higher than an industrial would. Um, and that's because we're, we're one customer in a very long, regulated line. And that's not the, the utilities uh, fault. That's a, that's, they're doing their best to keep things reliable, right? It's really the market structure that has driven, you know, those uh, type of striations in what you can pay and, and what you don't. So I think, Brian, your question was a little bit more about small EMPs and, and, and their abilities to band together with some shared assets, right? Was that kind yeah. of where you were going with that? Yeah. That is some troubles doing that because then that makes well, you that makes you a utility. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, that's where I was uh, kind of give a long-winded answer of saying um, the difficulty there is the uh, um, the regulatory structure is set so that if you're looking for individualized power, the utility serves that, right? If you're, it's not where I I can get with. Uh, um, Simon, because he lives kind of near me and make my own little microgrid and, and be able to, you know, uh, pool power resources or things like that. It's, it's really not set up to do that. And really, that's where, you know, having a, a large single use, um, uh, single company use uh, scenario is, is where you're going to be able to take advantage of this type of large electrification. So the scenario for the PC won't allow it. Yeah, no, there, I mean, there's it's already structured that way. So, um, I mean, that's really where, uh, where you know, having that larger build out and a larger need is, is where you look to do that. So we hear a lot about decline curves. Um, how do you think about decline curves for this? Because if you've got wells out there, you know, they've been out there for a year, they're seeing significant decline. Is, is this still something to consider? Or we talked about brownfield, greenfield earlier a little bit, I know, but how, like, um, is there a certain point to where you kind of know, hey, these wells after two years or three years, they're just not going to produce enough regardless. Is there kind of a threshold for that? Yeah, no, that, that's actually a great question. Um, there is a threshold for that, but what folks have been taking into account is how much more can you get out of there with different technology, right? We've seen where folks have re revisited areas, um, you know, that that were drilled or explored in, in, you know, a different technology era, and now all of a sudden with a larger, you know, uh, uh, horsepower spend or different technology, you're really you know, getting more out of that same asset, right? Um, and, and that's where you're going to take that into account. Are you 
uh, prevailing yourselves of technology that can utilize more power at the same spot, right? For for longer for long usage, rather than just you know keeping keeping the well on as is, right? We're seeing things like e drilling, e fracking, and things like that, where if you have that structure out there, that infrastructure out there, then you can utilize this for those type of opportunities as well, and it may be right on the same path. Right. So you're really coming back to the same location or somewhere near uh, to get into those fields. If you're in a scenario that, you know, the, the company is feeling that that asset is already on decline and there's not opportunity in the near term. That's where, you know, looking at all the different opportunities in your, your stack is going to put that at a lower priority. OK. All right. I know we are getting up against the clock here. Anything else that you guys wanted to touch on that we didn't um hit on before we let you out of here you have a white paper which we'll link to in the show notes i see um, anything else just that you guys want to touch on yeah I, i'd like to say i mean one of the one of the things in the white paper that that i wrote we've had a couple out there and in, in from our experiences is that we really should be looking at a win-win situation uh between you know the utilities uh co-ops uh munis and, and those in the electrical industry and, and those trying to to electrify their assets out in the field um, that's always going to be the best plan. You know, that's always going to be the best way to, you know, long-term relationship. You're going to have assets out there. And so there's an opportunity if you really understand both sides to do it the right way, right? Um, looking for a partner in your local utility, looking for a partner in your co-op, because um, there may be a, some, you know, miscommunication over the fence sometimes in two different industries. But as you can see, everything's tied here in Texas. Everyone, everyone's really excited about the exploration that we do, the jobs that it brings. And the electrical industry is excited about it as well. So we just want to make sure that we focus on a win-win situation uh, for those that that are looking to uh, employ this endeavor for for opportunities for redu reduction in emissions. Okay. And so where can people find out more about what you guys got going on? Uh, website, uh, connect to you personally. We'll link to the white paper we said. You can be trade shows, events. Where do you want folks to go to? Yeah, I think connecting personally, I mean, it's a, it's an emerging thing for us. I mean, there's opportunities, I think, in linking to your white, the white papers, we have a landing page specific to that. Um, I always tell people we, we have a 7,000 person army behind us to find the right answer. So, yeah, it's probably best. Um, you know, Simon and I have been doing a lot in this space for us to find the right people at the right time. And at the end of the day, you're looking for the right plan, maybe not execution now or anything like that. So always happy to pick up the phone and have a conversation. Yeah, and then we we uh, we hopped in and out of the different industry conferences. I know the PCIC, the IEEE PCIC will be going in uh, San Antonio. We'll be there. Uh, talk about some of this stuff, but even some of the, uh, you know, the hard energy stuff, uh, the Hainesville uh, conference for the, the, the Hainesville show. Play. I'll be there later this week. Uh, I know the Permian one is going to be up in Fort Worth here in a few months. We'll be we'll be over there talking electrification and, and answer any questions there. So I mean we're we're in and out and around. Okay, great. Well, we, we will link to y'all's LinkedIn profile as well in the show notes. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, so much for coming on. It was a pleasure, and uh, best of luck to you guys. Thank you. Always. Thanks for having us. Thanks for All right, Mr. Shelton, what else we got for the day? All right, we got basically one thing here. Uh, Orsted launches its first renewable hydrogen project. Uh, so that's uh, that's the main story for the roundup. Obviously, the cabot oil and gas was the big one. This one also. Yeah, it'd be nice if, if if we had someone that would cover that story for us. God. Yeah, it would be real nice, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. So that that uh, that wraps us up for for that uh, white paper. I read through some of that. Man, it's uh, interesting interesting stuff there. So uh, encourage people if you're yeah. interested. 
take a look at that. The, the question that, I, and I didn't want to ask them because it's not really fair to them or anyone is, if all producers use this model, would we've had the would we've had the freeze out a few months ago? Yeah, right. Yeah, they're thinking about that. I was like, I wonder if everyone had you deployed this technology, if we would have had. Um, uh, you know, the freeze out that we had or as long or as bad. Of course, I don't want to put them in the spot because that's kind of a kind of a loaded question there if you answer it. But that's what I was thinking about. Like, is this something that could help us in the future uh, prevent this? Of course, it has to make economic sense. And to their point, when we started talking about ESG in the beginning, right? So if this is something that can help producers make money and get in better terms with um, with investors, then it's definitely something something to consider but we'd love to hear from someone who has used this technology hear their thoughts be happy to have you on the show uh, reach out and with that josh until next week keep climbing